This is Only the Strong Survive, a podcast powered by Khan Media, where we dive deep into the world of business, leadership, and innovation. I'm your host, Dan Khan, and I'm honored to have you join us today. So let's get ready to learn some survival skills together. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Only the Strong Survive, powered by Khan Media. I'm your host, Dan Khan, and our mission today is to understand the root of entrepreneurship, leadership, and business. We want to ask the question, are leaders born or built? And to answer that question today, we have a serial entrepreneur with us. I'm really excited we have Evan Currid on the show. Evan is an entrepreneur, an adventurer, and someone who has hit the lottery in terms of turning his passion into a business career. He is currently the founder and president of Hitchfire and previously founded uh, Tapui Outdoors, the leader in rooftop tents, which was eventually acquired by Thule. Inspired by adventure, road trips, food, and his love of the outdoors, Hitchfire was created as a solution to those who needed a quality kitchen set up on the go, on the road, or even uh, off the road and, and in the backcountry. So Evan, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show and welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dan. My pleasure to be here. So I know I just kind of gave a very brief overview of your career, but um, could you just start off by kind of telling us a little bit about your journey and, and your experience? And you're a, a pretty young guy to have started two well-known brands and, and, and a really successful company that was kind of created a category. So can you tell us a little bit about your whole story and your journey? Sure. Um, you know, it, I've been sort of messing around, tinkering with sort of businesses and uh, ideas you know, since I was in high school. In fact, um, when I was a senior in high school, uh, my dad had purchased a restaurant bar that was next to the bank. And for five months, we, you know, he, he didn't have any ambitions in actually opening it. He was just holding the real estate. And so I asked him one day, hey, can I, uh, can I open that, you know, as a sort of a restaurant bar for some kids, you know, high school students? And so, yeah, sure, you know. And so we went in there and um, literally went to like Costco and bought griddles and food and, and opened that for about five or six months, um, serving, you know, grilled cheese sandwiches and canned sodas and stuff like that. And in fact, you know, had live music there on Fridays and Saturdays and would charge like $2 at the door. And throughout that time, we raised enough money that me and, uh, you know, five of the other friends that helped me, we, we ended up purchasing an RV and, and drove across the country right after we graduated. And then, you know, came back and all went our separate ways and off to college and things like that. But, you know, that was sort of my first sort of foot in that sort of entrepreneurship when you're just like, you have an idea, you have a vision, um, and you start, you know, dipping your toe in and figuring it all out. Um, and so, you know, I, I went off to school and, um, you know, did what college kids do, um, came out of college and got a traditional job, which uh, looking back, it seems that that was a world ago, you know, uh, going in and, you know, casual jeans Friday and wearing a collared shirt and, you know, playing the game. I remember those days. How much autonomy did you have? Did your dad just say, like, go, just do your thing? And or I was so scared. When you look back at it, I mean, the fact that, you know, we had no insurance, that no permits or licenses. I mean, this is a small town, Pennsylvania. So keep that in mind. It's, you know, I graduated 225 people. You know, you kind of know everybody in the town. It's, um, you know, rural Pennsylvania. But even so, um, you know, we got a bunch of kids who are 16, 17, and 18 grilling, you know, grilled cheese sandwiches and burgers on griddles they bought from Costco and uh, serving cans of soda for 50 cents. Uh, but it was successful because we created an environment. We created a culture there where, you know, people from different towns would come and hang out. And so it was a neat little experiment, if you will. And you use the proceeds to buy an RV and go on an epic road trip, which is, so it sounds like from kind of square one, you were building these sort of businesses to support your lifestyle and yeah. kind of allow you to go on adventures. <laughs> it was certainly a, an ambition of mine to, you know, graduate, get an RV and, and do just explore the country. Um, you know, my friends at the time, none of them were really digging in with jobs. Like I, I had some side jobs, you know, I did paper routes. I worked at Wendy's once and thank you Burger King. You know, I did stuff mowed lawns but looking at the other friends they weren't really digging in and so if we were going to do this road trip we were going to need another big source of revenue uh in order to purchase an rv and support ourselves you know for six weeks across the country so so that was also a motivating factor was like hey you know you guys come with me let's let's do this um 
let's earn some money together and then let's use the proceeds and, and have this epic adventure. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, it sort cool. of worked out that way. Yeah, it was super fun. We had a, a music festival at the end of it called Sauces Music Festival, which obviously because of Sauces Pit, we kind of ran into all these different bands and, uh, and it was cool. We rented out a field out in the middle of nowhere, built a stage. Uh, we had like probably 600 people there. And, you know, we charged, I think, $25 a head for a day's worth of music. Um, and it was cool. Like that sort of topped it off. And that gave us the last, you know, proceeds we needed to sort of get going. You've been uh, you've been kind of walking a pretty consistent line, it sounds like. That's pretty cool. I like it. So what was the first gig? What was the Casual Fridays job? Well, that was, you know, I like I said, there was this sort of gap between that and, you know, call it real world, right? So I, I did, I took a job, you know, several jobs actually outside of college. You know, I worked as a, for a general contractor for years and then got into sort of construction management on the commercial, you know, property side. Uh, a big, big player out here on the West Coast equity office. And so I, um, you know, like I said, you know, we'd go into an office where people wore ties and collared shirts. I mean, you know, through the week you're wearing khaki pants and, you know, proper business attire. But then on Fridays you got to wear jeans and it, I'd always irritated because it's like, I, you know, and this is before COVID, right? Years before COVID. So there was no work from home and, you know, do what you want. Employees didn't have that type of sway. You just, you towed the line. And so, you know, I did that professionally, that professional career for, boy, I mean, you know, even up and through when I started Tapui, because Tapui was really a side gig. I mean, I didn't. So let's let's talk about that. I remember seeing my first Tapui tent. I think the first rooftop tent I saw was a Tapui tent. And at the time, I thought, that is so, like, weird. Like, I mean, as someone who grew up my entire life tent camping, the first time I saw one, I'm like, why would you want your tent on your roof? And then, like, once I, I, I started talking to people about it and started to understand the concept and, and the overlanding thing, I, I got it. And I was like, okay, this is cool. It gets you off the cold ground and you're safer from predators and all this other stuff. But I did ask myself, and this is years and years and years ago, like, who the hell came up with this idea? So now I know who came up with the idea. So so walk us through that. How, what was the evolution of that whole concept? Well, you know, it's it's great that you give me credit for it, but we really, I didn't come up with it. Um, we... When we started Tapui, my wife and I started Tapui, that was after a trip to Venezuela. So my wife is Venezuelan, and, you know, we were road tripping down there, and we were off in sort of East Venezuela on the coast on a road trip. And, you know, we were surfing, looking for surf spots in sort of remote areas, and pulled into this um, little area. Uh, Pui Pui was the name of the, you know, beach break there, and saw all these people camping. There must have been 300 cars and, and rooftop tents on every single one of them. And this is probably 2006 or something like that. And so I had never seen, just like you, I mean, I've been camping my whole life, grew up in rural Pennsylvania, fishing on the river, et cetera. You know, I had never seen this. I never even really put it together. I, and I had traveled across the country at that point already in an RV. So, you know, I'd seen a lot of what was out there um, as far as sort of camping and, and RV parks and trailers and things. But uh, I started taking pictures of them. I mean, I just, same thing with you. I'm like, what is that? What, is that really a tent on their car? And, and in Venezuela, because it's so hot and humid, they had, you know, rigged them up with air conditioners and you know, oh, platforms wow. between them. Um, yeah, lighting and all this kind of stuff. So they were sort of a little rough around the edges than what we eventually brought to market, but um, still, you know, solid rooftop tents. And so after taking all those pictures and coming back, uh, this was, you know, right around that financial crisis, you know, and, you know, my wife had been laid off. And mm -hmm. what are we going to do? It's like, well, I mean, what if we bring in these tents? And at first that was the idea is, well, we'll just source them out of Venezuela because I thought it was exclusively a Venezuelan thing. Um, but that became challenging because this idea of sending down, they have a big black market currency exchange, right? And so, you know, there's sort of the real exchange, two to one, or the black market, six to one at that time. So oh, wow. Say. And so the idea of sending down cash to be, you know, converted on the black market where there's really no record or paper trail really didn't seem like the proper foundation to build your business on. No, that's and a little so, sketchy. Yeah. Yeah. We, we brought in like five tents, you know, from, from a supplier down there. And we're like, okay, this is, and they were all made out of wood and really rustic, you know, stapled tents to the, to wood platforms. And, um, I said, okay, that's not going to work. We have to build our own tents. And we started building them here, you know, in Santa Cruz, we, um, I, that's where I met one of the 
partners who helped me build the Tapui uh, as a brand, he was a furniture maker. And we went down, uh, my wife had dinged my surfboard, which I was very upset about. So I went down to get it repaired at a local repair shop. The next door was a furniture guy. And I walked in and I said, well, how's business? This is guy Bernard, he's a great character. And he comes out and he says, well, not that good. Could be better. I said, well, be interested in this project. And I showed him one of these Venezuelan tents. You know, I had it on my car and opened it up. And just like you, he looked at it and said, what in the world? Who would want to camp on that car? What, what is this, right? And, but I, I convinced him uh, to make us a, a wooden base out of marine grade plywood. And uh, my wife and I set off to upholstery places around the area to try to get a tent sewn and find mattresses and all the metal poles and stuff. By the time we were done, I think it cost us like $3,200. And this okay. monstrosity. So it was, again, another no-go. We weren't going to build a company making $3,200 homegrown tents. Um, so then we, we started, you know, contract manufacturing. We started trying to source these from people who manufactured, um, you know, things, ground tents and, and things like that. Um, so that we could actually make these at a reasonable cost. Uh, and, and so that's what we were sort of like. And obviously, it's a Pui name um, is from the, their indigenous uh, people, the Pimus, and that means house of the gods. And so a tapui, what they call a tapui is what we call a mesa. You know, it's a you know, flat you know, tabletop mount. And so that is um, where the name origins come from. And we sort of said, okay, let's let's go forward with this. You know, again, my wife sort of, she's unemployed at the moment. Um, I'm still working now, still again for equity office, but uh, again, thinking this is going to be really cool. There's going to be some people who really like it. Um, let's give it a go. And so, you know, I think she made our first website on an iMac, you know, with the old iWeb. And yeah. this is 2007 or 8 or something like that. And then it took us a while to get sort of product. And we started with a 20-foot container. We found a contract manufacturer and bought these in and, um, you know, launched on. And did you have kids at this time? No, no kids. Okay, so pre-kids, but in a recession, start this yeah, new yeah. company. Yeah, yeah, unemployment, and trying to figure out how to, you know get get something going and uh and it was neat i mean it didn't it wasn't like we launched in the way that certainly in the way that i launched hitchfire you know years later and we'll get into that later but because you know, we had no budget i mean i we had you know what was our savings which was about eleven thousand dollars um and it, you know that wasn't enough for a down payment on a house you know certainly not even in santa cruz uh right back in those days and so um it was like let's let's give this a go and so that was really all of our savings you know, bringing in product and doing almost everything yourself, you know, from bookkeeping to web development. To so what, what I'm curious about is, so you decide to do this thing, and, and I, I tend to think uh, in my experience that, and we work with a lot of founders as well, that recessions are actually really fertile ground for startups. You know, it's it, it really because of exactly the situation you described. You know, a lot of times people end up in sort of a corner and say, okay, how how am I going to fight my way out of this corner? And sometimes that can, you know, uh, spur some real creativity. But you know, you guys, it sounds like you know, you're not only starting a new thing, which is which is hard, especially during an economically challenging time. You're also sort of starting, or at least introducing, a new category to a new market. So how so how did that go? So now you have a container full of these tents, and and you've got to sell them, and I assume you're gonna either sell direct to consumer or sell to distribution. But what did those meetings look like when you started talking to people to show them the product? Did did they get it or did you have to create pull at the bottom of the funnel to, to make everyone understand what you're trying to do? You know, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Um, half the people that we showed it to just laughed at us because, you know, we still had to sell these things that, you know, which at the, at these days, is, I think are what we called a kukunum, which was a three mo- three man tent. Sells for about thirteen, fourteen hundred dollars. We were selling that for six hundred and fifty dollars. So imagine opening this tent in a parking lot and showing it to somebody and saying, "Here's a tent for six hundred and fifty dollars." Seems like a deal now, but people would just laugh and say, "Why would I can go to Target and get one for forty bucks? I can get a Coleman right. and set up on the ground." And so there was this sort of education curve that we had to sort of fight up. And um, we didn't. I didn't even know at that point because I had no experience really in this consumer goods, you know, business. Uh, I had done construction management and engineering and things. So uh, I didn't know what D2C was or, you know, 
you know, B2B or, or whatever, you know, I didn't, these, these terms right. didn't make any sense to me. So I knew what eBay was. And so we, you know, sold several of our tents on eBay. And then we, you know, we did, we had to sort of educate people and I had to educate myself as well. Um, because, you know, rooftop tents had been around for decades and they were really in that overlanding space. And so I wasn't an overland. Um, I like to overland now. I've, I've really, you know, come a long way from them. But at that point, I was more outdoor rec, surfing, mountain biking, skiing, whatever. And um, we started saying, okay, well, if this is real and the people who tend to be buying these are in that overlanding space, well, let's go to a few shows. You know, let's let's learn this category so that we can better, you know, market to our consumer. And so, you know, that's what we did. Went to Overland Expo. Your back when was out at Mormon Lake and yep. um, you still camped in your booth and, you know, cooked over your own fires and sort of wandered around all night long talking to your neighbors uh, the good old days if you will you know but uh and when did you feel the shift when did when did you feel like the company started it like I, I guess at some point you probably had to quit your day job right and start running to buoy and like when, when did that all kind of coalesce and, and you woke up and said hey this is a real business and and we got to get serious was that early on or did that take a while oh that took a while i mean i think you know, the first year in business, you know, we were still, all of our inventory was housed in an extra storage space. You know, what those are, those storage container areas you can, yeah, uh, yeah, those garage things. So we had, we had one of those, um, then we had two, then we had three. And when I finally looked up, probably it must have been coming into our third year, and we had the majority of the ground floor, their, their 20 by 25s taken. And so we, we probably had 12 or 14 of them full of tents. Oh, know? wow. And the guy, and the problem was, so, you know, because I still had a full-time job, my partner, Bernard, um, you know, he was sort of semi-retired, so he didn't, he, he could kind of do a little bit more of the operations, but my wife had gone back to work. And so we were relying a lot on the guy who worked up front to, you know, basically make sure that the boxes got on the trucks. So we would come and label everything and then line them up next to the front gate and then FedEx would come and the guy was kind enough to put him on his lift gate and, and load him up. And at one point he kind of looked at us and we had 60 tents lined up, ready to be shipped out, don't going down the fence line. And there was no parking left. And yeah, we had, we're probably their biggest customer, but he kind of looked at me and said, guys, I think it's time for you guys to, to you know, move into a warehouse. And so, so just to, to clarify, so Bernard was the carpenter whose business was kind of slow next to the surfboard shop, right? So so he stuck, he stayed with you. He stayed on as a partner. Right. And, and, you know, my wife and I discussed that a lot. And one of the main reasons is going into business with your wife is, you know, that's tricky. And so I, I wanted to have that third element, you know, so it's okay. We've got three of us. It's not just you and I. And if we disagree, everything falls apart. It's there's three people here. And now we at least can, hopefully two people can agree on something and then we can move forward. You know, so it was for balance. That's actually smart. Yeah, so you have a two out of three vote on any contentious issue, basically. Right, and that's what we did. We split it three ways. You know, we just said, okay, here we go. You're going to third, you get a third. And, and he, was a, he was a great guy, you know, good guy to have around. And Okay, so you at some point, you've rented out most of the first floor of a self-storage type facility and... You're, I guess you're, you're doing mostly web sales, so you're selling everything online, and then you guys are doing fulfillment through literally just you're packing them on the truck from the self-storage place, and that's when the the manager or whatever at the self-storage place finally says, Evan, you got to move. It's time to, time to grow up, time to get, yeah. a, to like get you your own a place. Now. And so, yeah, that was sort of when we looked at each other and we're like, okay, I think we do have a business. I think we can, let's, let's sign a lease somewhere. Let's do this for real. And so we did. We signed a lease at, you know, a place down the road and um, moved everything in there and, and hired our first employee. And um, so we no longer needed to rely on somebody, the manager, to make sure that our boxes got onto the FedEx trucks. He, this employee was able to, you know, fix labels and, you know, be a part of it. And at this point, you're still working the other job or? or... I still work the other job. Um, and I, th I think it was okay because, you know, at our volume it wasn't a full-time, you know, you can, you can't force yourself to grow faster than company wants to grow, you know? And, and so we were really, um, you know, suffering from sort of 
product awareness. And so mm-hmm. there was a certain critical mass that we had to get out before it really sort of tipped over. And that first three years was building that critical mass, you know? And at this point, is it just one product offering or do you, do you, in that first two or three years, are you starting to roll out different sizes and different um, models or is it just one unit? We really stuck to two main models that first probably three years and then started to introduce accessories around those. And what we really discovered was that, you know, even looking at the rooftop tent market, when we decided to enter it, it was like, well, look, there's ARB has one model. It's one size and it's one color and it's incredibly expensive. Surely we can do better than that, just based on what I saw in the Venezuelan market and how sort of, I don't know, excited I was about the product. You know, that that same sort of excitement I felt was going to be, you know, seen by other people, you know, if they could just become aware of this product, um, that enthusiasm, right? And so uh, that's when we started pivoting and saying, look, we're not going to do a brown tent, one color, one size. We're going to start introducing you know, brighter colors, stuff that's more sort of contemporary, you know, more in line with the outdoor recreation market, not sort of drab brown in the desert. Right. So now how are you marketing at this point in those early first two or three years? Are you going to shows? Is it beyond, you know, obviously Overland Expo you already mentioned, are you going to the bigger shows like, like SEMA or outdoor retailer? Are you? Not really. We couldn't afford those shows. Um, Overland Expo was and still is to this day pretty cheap as far as shows go. Um, but we would go to some regional stuff like Sea Otter Classic, uh, which is just down the road. We would start trying to join like clubs. Like um, we would go to the local Santa Cruz 4x4 club chapter meetings. And, um, you know, I, we did a lot of guerrilla stuff. You know, I would sit on the top of 17, which is the highway that connects San Jose and Santa Cruz, and we'd open a tent just hang out there because everybody's stuck in traffic going over 17, but they're looking over and they're like, what is that? You know, what is that? Like guy sitting on the side of the road with a tent open for, you know? Um, but it became a lot of that stuff, you know, and surf, surf parking lots and stuff, surf parking lots. So we didn't have a lot of money. We did do SEO and we had like a mm-hmm. Facebook group and, and things like that. But in those early years, um, it the what's different, I guess, now uh, is that things happen a lot faster especially with social media, you know, they, there was no Instagram ads going at that time. And, and things generally, especially because there's nobody aware of the category, you could get away with going a little slower, growing a little more organically, you know, um, grassroots style. I don't know that you could do that. Certainly with a rooftop tent company, you could, you would be unknown because, you know, it's a crowded space at this point. Yeah, so. exactly. Yeah. So let's skip ahead a couple of years. So, so you get the office, you get that first kind of full-time employee, things start moving. At what point do you get more involved and say, Hey, we need that, you know, when, when did you, cause it seems like you're just, I mean, you and I met at one of our events earlier this year and, and, um, and we'll talk about that a little later, but in general, you just, you seem like you've got a really, uh, kind of, uh, relaxed vibe. And so I'm curious, like at any point, are you going like, hey, this thing needs to, you know, when did you start deciding I want to scale it or I want, I, you know, we have certain numbers we need to grow or is it just organically, we're just going to keep doing this thing and hopefully it just keeps growing. You know, was that a, with the partners and, and your yeah, wife? Was there no, ever... I mean, look, we never took on any financing. Um, we bootstrapped it all the way to the very end. Never took uh, any money from anybody else. And so, but I will say that, so th- I don't know that I looked at it and said, we're going to scale this thing. I will say that I'm very competitive. So if I'm doing anything, even if it's, you know, you're running your own business, um, one thing that motivates me more than anything else is when a competitor enters the space. And at that point, you know, I think it was probably somewhere around 2013, 14, when I came aware of CBT, which was a rooftop tent company out of Bend, Oregon. And um, I think there might've been another player or two, but there was you know, James Baroud, which was still mainly European based, but there was a couple other ones starting to get into the space. We were still starting to get the most attention because again, the market was underserved. So even when we would go to shows, it wasn't that hard to get attention and to get sales. All you had to really do was open the tent and people, you know, everybody else was trying to play cornhole or, you know, spin the wheel and get a prize. All we would do is open the tent and hang out with people and, you know, drink some cold beers and whatever, play some music. And people really just, you know, kind of got into it. But then when competitors started coming into the space, that really motivated us. And we said, okay, we, we have to start out maneuvering 
these these other competitors. And that might mean, you know, getting into some distribution because that was something that I didn't really, I didn't really understand to be fair, but I also wanted to avoid because I knew it would be more complicated from a margin perspective. Um, you know, we would have to jack up our prices in order to make room for any kind of retail distribution. And so that, um, that did come about by my, my sister, coincidentally, uh, had a connection with Bass Pro Shops. And so she, that was our first real retail, which came about, you know, say four years after we launched. And, you know, they didn't do a lot of volume. But when we were able to put that logo on our website, that was like, whoa, okay, that makes us look a little different. Maybe we don't look quite as sort of homegrown anymore. And so maybe we need to spend a little money, you know, revamping our website. And let's take on a different persona as far as sort of, you know, the business and who we right. are. Uh, and so that really began that journey into retail distribution, which you know, then led us to go into their first outdoor retailer show, which was, I think, around 2015. Um, and, you know, we talked to a lot of, you know, buyers there. One particularly, REI, was a, was a big player in the space that we were trying to get into. Um, so so that, was, that was really impactful for us to, to go to that show and all of a sudden start to become sort of more known to that retail world. Yeah, you know, in, in his book Zero to One, Peter Thiel, who was one of the co-founders of PayPal and was involved in the early days of Facebook and all that, he he has a quote, and I'll probably butcher it, but he basically says, uh, distribution is the most critical component in marketing that no one ever talks about. Because with excellent distribution, a mediocre product can become a category killer, but the inverse is not true. So if you have a great product and, and bad distribution, you're not going to be successful. So it was it's interesting that that you bring that up, that that was sort of your first big moment. So, so did REI end up picking it up? Um, not at first. Um, it was interesting. They, uh, looked at us, they looked at the stuff, they talked to us, then they passed. We actually went up to REI. I remember cause I drove, you know, I had in those years bought this old 1980 Land Cruiser, uh, diesel right-hand drive at, um, drove out all the way to Washington which was that, you know, and we took some back roads. So we, we went up through like Nevada and that is a great vehicle. But after you drive it a thousand miles, you really want to get out of it. It is just, so the, it drives that like was a 60 tank. series or an 80 series. Like, yeah, it's, 80s, a, it's a 60 series. Yeah. So yeah, those um, are pretty crude. I mean, they're cool, but they're crude. <laughs> really cool. Well, we thought that was, well, that was all that show. Out of eye with this really cool right-hand drive diesel Land Cruiser. And actually, it's funny because I'll, I'll go back to that in a second. And, you know, we're going to open up the tent, show, give her a little demonstration. And, and so we do all of that and drive all the way back to Santa Cruz. Again, just sucking down diesel fumes, which is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> you know, trying to keep this thing on I-5. And then uh, they say, no, we're going to pass. We don't really, you know, think this category has legs. And then I guess that buyer went off to Europe and saw other rooftop tents. He must have been exposed to them somewhere, James Bruce, something like that. And then came back and said, you know what? Um, I'm going to, I think this category does have legs. I'm, I'm changing my mind. I, I want to bring you guys on board. I want to launch with the whole, your whole product line, all the SKUs. Uh, let's get going. And so that was interesting. And in fact, we took that same Land Cruiser because this, I guess the then CEO, I don't know if he's still the CEO or whatever, really liked the Land Cruiser and wanted, um, we put it in their flagship store. I think it was oh, in, wow. in Seattle, one of their flagship stores. You know, they have one, a big store up there somewhere. And so they requested that as part of sort of the launch. We brought that up there and it sat right inside the front door with, you know, they kind of had the tent open. God, and talk about merchandising. Up. That's a hell of mm -hmm. a coup to have sure your whole rig inside the store. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that was cool. That was a neat um, sort of experience to, to get that, you know, relationship going. And, uh, you know, what, what it really also did was provided us a little bit more critical mass and forecasting because they would buy you know, big chunks at a time. So now it wasn't us just sort of waiting for the right moment to order the next batch of tents because we were looking at our consumer direct sales and trying to forecast and predict. It was like, no, they just came in and gave us a PO and it's split over four months and they want 100 now, 100 there, 200 here, whatever, you know what I mean? So now all of a sudden it was like, well, okay, that's a million dollar PO. That's interesting. And so that really was, I mean, from that point forward, 
everything took a different, you know, flavor. It was just a different landscape, you know. And how long did, from that, from, from REI sort of giving you that rocket feel to when you sold the company, how, how long did you run things? How, like, what was, what was that interstitial period? How long did that take? Well, we sold the company in like, so would that be another four years, I guess, you know, so we, we. That's a pretty fast turn from startup to retail distribution to selling the company at the, you know, as far as yeah businesses go, that's a pretty quick deal. Yeah. It, I, I mean, looking back, I suppose you're right. I, you know, part of me wanted to hang on a little longer and, and it certainly gave me a lot of heartburn, heartache, I should say after, you know, the deal closed, but, um, it did seem like the right time. You know, we had grown it, but the space also became incredibly crowded and incredibly competitive. So, you know, by 2015, we were the only people at, you know, OR with Rooftop 10. Um, even at that point, going to Overland Expo, I think you know, there was three Rooftop 10 companies there, four maybe. By the time 2018 came around, I think I walked around and counted 42 different names on Rooftop 10. Wow. And so at that point, I, that was... I, I, just ridiculous, you know? I remember it happened very quickly. I mean, I remember over the course of maybe two or three years, all of a sudden, even at shows that are sort of related, but not totally on target, like SEMA, where all of a sudden you get to SEMA and every, it felt like every booth in the truck hall had a rooftop tent on it and they all had different names. And it's like, whoa, where did this all come from? So, so was that, did that kind of sudden influx of competition in the marketplace, did that help influence your decision to sell it? Uh, it certainly did influence it. I mean, one of the guys who we brought in and I want to say it's probably t- late 2016, 17, I'm 100% sure, but he used to work over at SurfTech, which is a, a company here in Santa Cruz that sort of, I think, pioneered the stand-up paddleboard, um, certainly that brand did regionally. And, you know, he saw stand-up paddleboards introduced into OR in a similar fashion. They were the first, SurfTech was the first stand-up paddleboard at OR. And he saw over that 10-year period, it go from one to 50 brands. Everybody had a rooftop or a stand-up paddle brand. And then it was just a race to the bottom. And so his experience watching that and, and sort of seeing the same thing happen with rooftop tents was like, wait a second, I, it didn't end well there. It's not going to end well here. And you're going to race to the bottom. There's going to be a couple people who are going to sort of maybe survive and everybody else is just going to go away. Um, and I didn't want to be one of the, brands that went away. We had put a lot into it. I mean, we had just done a rebrand. Um, you know, we put a lot of money into, you know, that whole process, you know, building a brand book. And um, we were really in our stride. lifestyle. Yeah. Yep. So, so it seemed like that was certainly one of the, you know, factors that influenced us, but there was also just where we were. We were at this stage where, you know, we had, I don't know the exact number, but say we were, you know, you know, in the kind of ten million, tens of millions of kind of revenue, right? We were at the stage mm-hmm. where we couldn't grow any further. We needed to take investment or, um, you know, get acquired because you were, you're sort of treading water. You know, we, we didn't have, we weren't throwing off enough cash to grow at the rate we were growing without taking on investment. Um, and then that was going to dilute us anyway. So that whole road to taking on, whether it's private equity or, you know, whatever it may have been. Um, and I didn't have any experience in that either. Uh, so, you know, when this opportunity came about, it seemed that this might be a great, a great exit. So how did that happen? Was that, you know, it sounds like you were kind of saying, it sounds like you at that point had realized, and, and I'm sure your partner and your wife were, uh, who was also, you know, the three of you had some early conversations about like what you just described that, Hey, like we're kind of hitting this wall in terms of growth. So did, did, did Thule, and I don't want to spoil it, so I want you to kind of tell the story, but did they approach you out of the blue? Were you going around kind of knocking on doors looking for opportunities? How did that all come about? Yeah, no, we were not looking at all, and we would have never sold. I mean, it would, hadn't even really crossed my mind. I knew that there was a, a good chance in 2019, and we had talked to a couple of these investment banking firms, that we would need to take on some money because the growth of the brand, um, you know, from a retail 
distribution side to just consumer direct. I mean, it was just firing on all cylinders. And it was um, one of those things that, you know, you kind of look at and you're like, we, you know, yeah, we'll get through this year just fine. But, you know, what if we get a huge PO? What if we, you know, what about these other products we're trying to bring to market? And, and so um, that was the kind of the only thing we were really kind of entertaining is, okay, at some point we might need to take on some, some money. But people were always approaching us. They were, you know, knocking on the door, asking us if we were interested. None of them really felt sincere. And then when we got the call from Thule, they were just asking, or at least they sort of framed it as though they wanted to partner with us. And we sort of thought, oh, maybe it's sort of a marketing thing. You know, maybe we're putting a rooftop I mean, I guess that organically, putting... first blush, that sounds like it makes sense because they make a lot of like cargo racks and roof racks and things so, that uh-huh. would be kind of complementary to what you were selling, right? Right, right, yeah. And, and I didn't know that, I mean, do they just want us to make some rooftop tents for them. I didn't know what the partnership was. They didn't really go into a lot of detail, but it, it felt more along the lines of, you know, a marketing kind of partnership or a SKU partnership, you know what I mean? A co-branded SKU perhaps. Right. Uh, so we went off, uh, I went off to uh, Seymour to meet with them and, you know, they didn't beat around the bush. They sat me down and said, look, you know, we're, you're here because we want to acquire it and hopefully we can. And, you know, and so we just they right it. And so, yeah, uh, it was it was funny because on the plane ride over, you know, and this has never happened to me. I've I've traveled all over the world, um, most remote places, whatever, planes, boats, whatever you name it. And on the way there on the plane, the plane, the, I get gotten up and went to the bathroom, and all of a sudden the whole plane shuddered and just went quiet. And I've never heard a plane like that. I've been on so many planes, but the sound of the engines when they go off, I guess yeah, one of the engines caught fire. And they had to shut down the engines, you know, I guess, you know, and it, when it did, all the power went off to the plane. So all of a sudden you're just drifting, you know, at whatever, 35,000 feet. And I'm in the restroom and I come out, I'm like, whoa, this is really eerie. And then finally it took, it was probably a 30 second lag. And the, um, you know, pilot comes on, he says, hey, everybody take your seats immediately, put your seatbelt on. We've lost an engine. Uh, we're making, we're going to make an emergency landing. Well, that's a sign. I'm, oh my God! I know, <laughs> I, I'm on my way to meet Tully, and this happened. So I'm like, okay. So I go. Uh, we land in somewhere in Minnesota or something, and fire trucks all along the runway and everything like that, and pull in, uh, get off the plane. Luckily, you know, it actually landed without any problem, um, and we get off the plane. But now they're trying to find a new plane, and I get in like three or four in the morning, finally into New York, and then have to rent a car and drive up for the meeting the next day. So it's kind of a interesting start. I did look at that. I'm like, you know what? You don't want to look too much, too much into things, but it was an interesting, like, I almost didn't go. I'm like, I'm not getting back on another plane. You know, I was sitting there in Minnesota, like <laughs> taking a train home, I'm done. Uh, but no, it was fine. Uh, but yeah, so we had that conversation and, and I flew home and um, it took a while. I mean, that was, I think, in the summer and it took another six months until we actually agreed and, and came apart a deal, you know, to actually sell the company. So, and once you, and I mean, you know, and uh, I've been involved in, in a few business transactions and that, that last month or two, when you get to the close is, is so challenging. It's, it, it can always be so stressful. And then there's this moment afterwards where, you know, I've heard some people say they experienced joy or relief and some people say they've experienced immediate regret. And it, it seems like it's kind of all over the map. What, what was your feeling as soon as you closed the deal? Um, I think it was probably a bit of both, you know, I think there was, I think I had a lot of hope that we could still preserve some of the brand and the brand identity um that turned out not to be true but so i so i had a bit of hope there because i really had a lot of identity wrapped up in it and i had a lot of passion for what we were doing and and for our, the community we had built um and we used to have these great you know tapui fest shows where it was just basically you know customer appreciation party but it was just all brand love for three days out in the woods you know um and so i really wanted that whole you know environment to sort of continue. And um, so when I became sort of aware that it wasn't, um, there was sort of regret that clearly this is not how this is going to continue. But 
But there was also relief because, you know, my wife and I had, we're guaranteeing all of our lines of credit. Like we, we had a revolving line of credit. Well, at this point I did have kids. In fact, I had two kids. And now my house, which, cause we had bought a house is, is the guarantee on this line of credit. And we have 22 employees and, you know, we're making, trying to make payroll. You know, there's this whole balance because there is seasonality on your sound rooftop tents. And so, you know, from really December through March, was a really dark period for us every year because you don't know, is the spring ever going to come? Are people going to start going out camping again? And it always did. But, you know, having that sort of off your mind, it weighs a lot on you when you're responsible for a lot of people, their payroll, you know, inventory. It, it's a lot, you know. And so that was a relief. I get it. I totally get it. So so the deal closes and and... How long did you stay on at Thule? Because I think you had a, you had a, an interesting title too. It was like product innovation or something like that. Is that right? Yeah, I don't remember. I don't even think I looked at it very closely. Um, <laughs> I mean, it was a two-year transition. Um, I was required to stay for two years. And, uh, you know, I did the first six months were busy enough, you know, mainly getting them up to speed on the product and um, helping them forecast. I mean, what they were going to be able to do, which which was really awesome to be able to see a brand that you created and be taken sort of globally so quickly because they have, you know, so much presence around the world, you know, and, and I think they're in like 172 countries or something like that. And they have distributors and rep groups and everything. So that was pretty neat to see. And they really needed a lot of help sort of figuring out how that was going to scale because it's going to scale a lot quicker now that, you know, it's going to be put into their sort of supply chain. And so they um, did a lot of touring around to these different areas with them to explain the tents, explain the brand, explain, you know, what overlanding was, rooftop tents. And, and so that happened. And then it sort of slowly started getting quieter and quieter because um, I don't know that I ever expressed interest. And I don't know if they ever expressed interest in me kind of continuing on after that. So as there was less and less transition transitionary duties you know, to do, I started thinking about what I was going to do next. Well, let's talk about that. So, so eventually you, your two years is up and, and you walk away and you've, I assume, hopefully put a couple bucks in your pocket and your partner rides off into the sunset and, and then you say, Hey, let's start another company. So what was that like? Like it was, again, was that just like a, an aha moment? Was it fulfilling a need? Was it, Hey, I'm young and I, I have a lot of highway left and I need to find something to do. What, what? Uh, I think the most, probably the most compelling reason was that I was out of something to do. Um, I had so much wrapped up into Pui. I would, you know, you wake up, you think about it. You, you go on to sleep, you're thinking about it. And you're not thinking about necessarily what you're doing the next day, but what you're going to do in a week or a month or the next six months. You're, you're always sort of painting a picture of what, where you're going with this brand. And some days it's a very precise and clear picture. Some days it's a little fuzzier. But, you know, you, you have something. You're working towards creating this picture. And all of a sudden, my canvas was blank. And it made me very unsettled. I, I mean, I wasn't working on anything. I didn't have any vision. I didn't have any colors to play with. And um, so I, it was really reactionary. I really needed to get back into something. I needed something to stimulate me. And I, I, you know, I had all this sort of creative flow that I wanted to put to use. And so I needed something. And I walked around. I remember walking around OR that year. This is in 2019. So we had gone back and I was, you know, helping participate with the show. I think Tuli had moved off site that year into their own sort of special space down the road. But we did have a display in the lobby. And so I was walking around knowing that my transition was underway, but going to end at some point, and I was going to need to do something. And I walked up and down aisles looking at products that were there. And that's the one thing about OR. There are so many beautiful products and beautiful brands, and you, know, you see the engineering and design, but there's so, there's so many copycats. Like, there's not a lot of new, new stuff. You know, there are tents and water bottles and knives and you name it. Like, it's all sort of categories that have existed, but I hadn't really seen anything like, wow, that is brand new. I have never seen that before. And that was the thing that I really enjoyed about Tapui was I had never seen a rooftop tent before. 
And when I looked around the market, there didn't seem to be any rooftop tents at that time, back in 2007. So it really felt like, hey, this is something we're kind of pioneering. And I wanted that same uh, experience again. I didn't want to just get in and, okay, look, I can pull a few levers. I know the recipe now. I've learned a lot over the last 10 years. Let's just grab a product and go. I wanted to sort of have something that felt a little bit, you know, newer. You had to build something. I get that. So then, how? okay, so I love that, that that's the motivator. And I loved the analogy about the blank canvas because I, I, I totally understand that. And I think a lot of people will, especially if they're kind of wired to create. Um, so how, where does the light bulb go off that I want to build? And, and explain to our, our, our listeners, what is Hitchfire? What do you make exactly? And then let's talk about where that inspiration came from. So we make, you know, our flagship product is a uh, hitch-mounted grill. I mean, so it's it's a it's a grill just like a conventional grill that you would use, you know, backyard barbecuing, except that it's sort of built, it's purpose built to live on a hitch, you know, the hitch of a vehicle, a two inch hitch receiver, a swing arm that's actually mounted in there, so that it doesn't rattle to pieces. So, uh, you know, this swing arm is a big, robust, you know, chunk of steel that sits in there. Grill sits on top of that. You can swing it out, grill you know, cook whatever you want to. Yeah, and it kind of folds it away up. too, right? So when yeah. you're on the road, you just stow it and then you can unfold it when you get to your destination and tailgate or camp yeah. or whatever you got to do. And right? it's sort of tight. Yeah, it tucks away back in there. And, and so it's not, you know, it's not sticking out four feet behind your vehicle or anything like that. Um, but it's very easy to deploy. You just, you know, you know, put your foot on the slam latch, swing it out, open the side tables and fire it up. You know, so you could be cooking similar to a rooftop tent. That was one of the, you know, great attractions of rooftop tent is because you get to camp, unzip the cover, flip it open, crawl inside, you know, your sleeping bag and pillows are up there and off to bed you go. And so it was similar. Well, I kind of saw that like, okay, this is kind of just transitioning from the bedroom to the kitchen. It's got that sort of same convenience uh, that a rooftop tent had and um, has that same sort of new honest to it that a rooftop tent has. When people, at least by experience, when we've gone to a few trade shows, is people look at it and they're like, whoa, I've never seen that before. And so you don't need a game to bring people in. They want to come and look at this new... There's a showmanship to it, just like popping the tent. Well, and, and I'll, I'll tell our, our listeners that you saved our bacon uh, almost literally because we did a, um, through our trade agency, um, we were doing an overland event and there was a miscommunication with the caterer and she was supposed to provide one of the lunches and didn't. And, and you guys... We were, we were on a trail run that actually ended up, it was supposed to be mostly fire roads, and it ended up being a little more technical than I think some of us thought it would be. And and you guys just, you know, we've had a kind of an open spot, like a shoulder on the on the trail, and threw together a great lunch for everybody right there and, and fed the whole group, and everybody was really happy. And, and getting to that destination, there was some pretty technical crawling that we had to do to get there and I was kind of curious because I was behind you guys I'm like oh what's going to happen to that thing and it was fine it was totally great ground clearance and the unit survived beautifully and never I don't think I had a scratch on it by the time I got to the end of the trail it was a pretty neat deal yeah I mean and that really comes from sort of our experience with the overlanding from Tapui you know we had gone on a lot of trails um, we've experienced a lot of that and you know I didn't want to ignore those routes when we brought this, when we brought Hitchfire to market, it was, hey, you know, this is still stuff I love to do. Let's build a product. Let's stay in this space. Uh, and so we didn't just build a grill that should live on paved roads and parking lots. Uh, so that was. So on that note, did you have takeaways and lessons? Because the first time you did this, you, you sort of, I mean, you were coming from a totally different background. Now that you're on round two, what lessons have you been able to apply to Hitchfire that you learned through Tapui? Uh, boy, you know, I'd like to say I'm applying lessons and that's that's a good thing. But honestly, there's a whole array of new lessons. You know, I think it's actually more dangerous because some of the things that I thought I knew don't necessarily apply. Um. And, and let me explain that a little bit. You know, you, you in, a, in a weird way, I thought that I was going to be able to pick up right where I left off, okay? Um, turn the same dials, right pull the in. same levers, yeah. And and in fact, that was, I think, that, you know, that's naive, um, and that's on me. 
but I think that it would have been better to sort of come in in the with the same mindset that I had when we started Tapui. That we don't we don't have anything. There's no market. We have no budget. Um, we're going to grow this thing organically from the ground up. And the reason is because you 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 make sort of forecasts and predictions, and you sort of oh this is all going to work out this way because we have these contacts. We know this. You know, we, we know the recipe. We're just putting in different ingredients. But it doesn't, that's not, doesn't really translate. You know, it is a new business, and there's a lot about it that I still had to learn. Um, part of that is, you know, there's just a whole bunch of different markets this appeals to that I don't know. Uh, I didn't know the tailgating market and how important that was going to be uh, to the Hitchfire brand and are really the RV market and that sort of travel trailer market. So the... You know, overlanding and rooftop tents and camping, sure, I knew that. And we did have warm contacts and retail distribution. But we came in thinking that we were going to build out the brand very quickly and just be where we were. And it took a lot longer, I think, the first year or two were a little... And look, there was the pandemic. We launched during the pandemic. So that also... I was going to bring that up. I mean, you were walking on OR in 19, which means by the time this thing starts launching, you're in the middle of it, right? Was it 2020 yeah. that it, oh, wow. Yeah. Which is a mixed bag. I mean, it sounds exactly, like, yeah. I mean, on one hand, that's a, yeah. that's a tough time to start tough any business, but to, you know, the outdoor industry did pretty well during the pandemic from what I gather. Well, if you could get product, that's the problem. I mean, you did really well if you had product in your warehouses, but like we went from shipping containers for call it four thousand dollars for a forty foot to twenty one thousand dollars. Oh, and it wasn't okay. Just, yeah, I mean, that's, let me that's rephrase the industry. So the demand was there, but the supply chain was broken. Basically, it was totally broken. you would wait, you know, months to get product, pay, you know, from a shipping burden, you know, a hundred percent more than you used to, or more. You know what I mean per unit. And when you see, if we were shipping sunglasses and you can get a hundred thousand pairs into a container. It's incremental. But when you can get 260 units in a container and you're, you know, dividing 21,000 into that, or sorry, you know, 260 into that, that's, that's meaningful. So, so that made it challenging. Certainly the pandemic, um, was not, because also not a lot of people knew about Hitchfire. We would launched in late 2020, you know, so had we been where we are today and the pandemic hit and people knew about it, we probably would have reap the benefits of sort of that surge in, you know, demand for outdoor goods. So it's still kind of early for awareness. And at the same time, you're struggling to get product in on the shore here. And uh-huh. that's, that's challenging. So how did you tackle it? How did you overcome that? Uh, we kept our heads down and we pushed and went to, you know, went to a lot of shows. We, we did a lot of advertising we came up with a lot of creative stuff. We also sort of are in it for the long game anyway. So it was challenging, not only to get product, but also that manufacturing of that sort of first batch or two of product. You learn a lot more from that than any prototyping, testing. You know, you can get, you know, these are, we certify our grills. We get them CSA certified. We do the salt test sprays. You do all this stuff. Um, you, you use it yourself. You go out and field test it. But you really don't know until you get several hundred of them out there. Uh, you got to get your product out there. You got to get the feedback from customers. You got to understand what's working from sort of a user functionality standpoint, what's not, you know. And so it's really Gen 3 that you really start to be like, okay, we've, these are the features we needed. These are the ones we didn't. Now this product is really starting to, it evolves less and less every generation at that point. You know what I mean? You're just sort of reflecting. And, when you say keeping our heads down and just going for it, I, I think um, startup culture tends to have a lot of emphasis on kind of grind mentality, and we're just going to grind and grind and grind until we get there. Is that something that you found as, as well at both your companies, or, or is that something that you, like, as you grow another team and, you know, now that you've done this once before, you know, how much emphasis are you putting both for you and your wife, but also for your employees on sort of culture and work-life balance versus like, hey, we just have to survive and get there, especially like launching in a pandemic. And I mean, that's, that sounds like a pretty high stress deal. Well, I guess my definition of grind and 
Elon Musk's definition of grind are vastly different. I, <laughs> I think I, everyone's no, I, are uh, different than Elon's. You're not <laughs> sleeping under the desk? No, no, I don't do any of that. No, I, uh, I mean, I slept in the rooftop tent. Does that count? There you go. Testing, you that know, sounds like out, fun. Yeah. You know, camping on the trails. That's R and D. Um, when I, when I'm, my grind is like, you're just, you're, you know, in the face of all the challenges, uh, in the face of sort of letdowns, um, you know, whatever you may, you know, hurdle you may come up to next, you, you push on, you grind on. Um, that doesn't mean it's a 70 hour work week. Um, in fact, you know, I didn't start the first company and sell it so that I could work 70 hours on the second. I mean, and none of our employees do either. It's, um, like, I mean, I went surfing this morning for two hours, you know, it's not, it's not that I don't want to work hard, but I also didn't come this far to just, you know, waste my life away at an office, you know, looking at spreadsheets and emails, you know? So. So that leads to an interesting, or a question I wanted to ask this whole conversation. And, and I've heard people, so there's this phrase lifestyle business and, and, and some people find it like weirdly offensive. And I, I kind of always find it interesting when, you know, cause, and, and for, for the listeners who don't know what it is that, that when people talk about lifestyle businesses, it's sort of a business that typically are a big company or a private equity group or whatever. They refer to a lifestyle business as usually a smaller business where the founder, it allows them to sort of do a thing that they like and they earn a good living. And, you know, a lot of times like a family business could be a lifestyle business and it doesn't necessarily have to be like your hobby, but it's, so it supports your lifestyle, lets you live a good life, but it's not like, you know, you're out there doing some dot-com thing where it's like scaling and doubling every year and all that. Um, most small businesses that I work with in the industries that we work with, which are the outdoor industry and automotive and, you know, shooting sports and fishing and things like that, like most of the businesses, other than a couple of handful of big kind of behemoths, are a version of that. So I don't necessarily see that as a bad thing because in my opinion, if you can if you can work a job that you enjoy and you work in an industry that you enjoy and, and it allows you to actually kind of talk to people about the things you're passionate about, to me, that's, I mean, I wouldn't want to do marketing for toothpaste. That's just not like interesting to me. Right. So, um, but w- with that in mind, um, it, when, when you go into this thing for round two, was part of the goal to build some sort of long-term lifestyle business that you could stay a part of and allow you to continue to kind of grow it your way and interact with the audience that you're comfortable with? Or was it more like, hey, I want to build another thing to eventually scale or sell or whatever? What was the... Uh, the... It's the latter, certainly. Um, I, you know, that was sort of part of the criteria when sort of evaluating what this brand was going to look like, you know, not just from a product standpoint, but, you know, a marketing standpoint, sort of a brand identity standpoint. And, you know, I... I do enjoy that initial creative, you know, part of it. I don't like necessarily the maintaining of a business. And, and certainly in the Tapui years, you know, when we got into sort of the last two or three years, when you've got, you know, 20 plus employees and you're dealing with a lot more sort of accounting uh, sort of stuff on a day-to-day basis uh, and forecasts and stuff like that, well, that's sort of maintaining the business and these relationships, which is great. That's you know, that's an operations guy. I really enjoy sort of dreaming about what do we look like? How is our, you know, what is our product doing? Who are our customers? How do we, how do we get them passionate about our product and our brand? How, you know, that product and brand love is so important. And like, how do we pull that into, into our, into our sort of, you know, ecosystem, you know? And so I, um, I like that part of it. And so when I was looking at sort of hitch fire, I said, okay, look, there's a lot to be done around the hitch. There's bike racks, there's cargo carriers and people tow boats with, but nobody's really like doing, you know, doing anything interesting around there where the grill and several of the other products we launched afterwards, like the cook station at the ledge. So we're sort of rounding out our sort of assortment so that there's all of these other accessories and, and products that sort of, you know, I don't know, uh, build out life at the hitch and and this this idea that you know look you don't need to tow your boat you can also go to the football game or go do what we did down in Holcomb Valley and you know go wheeling and cook for 40 people you know what I mean there's a lot of stuff there and then as we sort of build out that product 
you know, assortment and build out our brand, um, you know, we need to get to a certain scale. But when we've kind of got to that scale, I want to be sort of on the exit ramp so that I can get on the on-ramp for the next thing, which I've already sort of got going. In fact, I'm sort of right there, ready for you. Can you tease us with what it is, or at least what the category is? No, sure. I'm a big, I'm not, you know, I've talked to lots of entrepreneurs and people, and it's funny because some people are so closed about their ideas. And like, I, I, there's this guy who, he wanted me to come in because he really wanted to consult with me about this idea. He wanted to see what I thought. And he made me sign this NDA and had to write down all these things that, you know, I thought that I might do that was similar to space because that would not be a part of the NDA. And then he was telling me, like, he didn't even want to Google it because he was afraid that he Googled it, you know. And it's like, wait, that's not how it works. In fact, if you have an idea, the best thing you could do is talk about it with as many people as possible because it will help you develop that idea and and what the market is and where the market is, how big the market is. And so this one here is, it's going to be, it's going to be called Lug Wagons. So we already incorporated, it's called Lug Wagons and... And like L-U-G, like when you lug your stuff around. And it's really an e-assist wagon using sort of a, a T-slot deck. Interesting. What a cool idea. I, had not, I, I have a wagon that I use when I'm camping with my kids, and there's no E part of it. I'm just, it's just me. I'm, I'm uh, well, dragging that, my gear around everywhere. I, I do the same <laughs> yeah. thing. I'm dragging them to the beach. I got chairs. I got coolers. I, got, I mean, and, you know, they both, between the two of them, I mean, they're over 100 pounds. You know, you walk a few blocks with that, you're like, okay, and you see somebody zipping by you on an electric skateboard or a scooter, you're like, man, just all I need to do is stand on that skateboard and I could just pull the wagon. With, you know, so it was just sort of combining that. Um, we have a lot of that E stuff in Santa Cruz right now. You do. Yeah. That's very cool. So, so you now you have multiple canvases propped up in front of you and you're painting a couple of different things at the same time. That's, yes, uh, yes, but that's, the second one a little slower. I mean, I'm really right there. We finished our working prototype. We've got our website design. We've got, you know, manufacturing sort of sorted and, and have the, the product, you know, quotes and everything. But, you you know, there is a go and no-go spot, right? And you can't, I can't release it yet. I can't launch yet because if you do, that's going to take attention away from Hitchfire. So I, I, I need to be in the right spot. It's not that you can't do both, but... Hitchfire is not right where I need it to be to pivot and launch lug wagons because you can't go back. I mean, it's not, it's not years out. It's probably months out, just to right. be clear. It's, yeah. But I want that to be sort of growing in that first three-year phase the way Hitchfire was. And then, because we're, we're just finishing our third year at Hitchfire. So, you know, the idea is get kind of hitch, Hitchfire to year five, and then it's sort of hopefully self-sustaining, and I can start to cultivate you know, the roots of, uh, like wagons. Okay. I love it. So a question I, I like to ask entrepreneurs on this show is, um, um, the way I learn is, is I, I don't have a background in entrepreneurship. I have a journalism degree. And, and so in my businesses, everything I've ever learned has been by kind of making mistakes and learning from them. And my personal kind of motto is make every mistake once. So I like to ask people, you know, what is a mistake looking back on your career, especially the last couple of businesses that you've built, um, what's sort of the biggest mistake that you've made and what did you learn from it? Biggest mistake that I have made. Um, I think it, it's probably... Um, you know, assumptions, you know, making assumptions about th that, you know, something, uh, when you don't really, and, and that's on sort of whether it's about products, people, you know, retailers, manufacturers, you, you know, taking stuff that at, at face value, um, you know, it, it would probably be a better, better way to go. Cause you, you do, you do interla interact with a lot of different people you know, and are a lot, and a lot of different brands, manufacturers. And, uh, at some point you sort of just say, oh yeah, it, it'll be fine because of this. Or, you know, we, you know, so you sort of assume that they're going to hold up their part of the bargain or they're going to do what they're contracted to do. And, and that doesn't happen. And that's burned me in a lot of different ways. I guess it's too trusting, you know, being 
you know, and you kind of have to be, you got to, at some point you have to have a level of trust, I think. Um, but that is one of the mistakes I think that has come around that it's like, wait a second, you need to sort of. So it's less about like product knowledge and more about like vendors and customers and just sort of the trust but verify idea of like making sure you. Yeah, I think so. I mean, look, I mean, I'm going to continue making mistakes with product for as long as I'm making stuff. There's That's unavoidable, but I think that's part of it. You know, I don't know that making the mistake is the mistake. Making the mistake is is the win uh, because you have to make the mistake to get to the win. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't, I never look at a product mistake. Uh, now, if I chose the wrong vendor because I assumed the wrong thing, that's the mistake. You know, it's not the what I do with the product so much, you know, the design or whatever. But if, um, yeah. That's good advice. I like that. So kind of on the flip side, I guess my, well, if you were approached by a group of young entrepreneurs today saying, hey, you know, Evan, I love making things or I love the outdoor industry or whatever it is and, and I want to do what you're doing, what advice would you give them? Well, I would say that, you know, you should do it. You should definitely get in. You know, you learn so much more about business, about um, you know, just even accounting principles. Because um, I, you know, I went to a class right and at Cabrillo just to learn. Because all of a sudden, to was getting big. He was like, I don't know what a P and L is. You know, I don't know what assets and liabilities. So, you know, but you you take these classes, you read these books. It is nothing like doing it. And so, you know, you know. Do it. Don't hesitate. Get involved, but also start small. Don't just don't assume that you're. It's just going to be huge. Come in there. Whatever you think your forecasts are, whatever you think your success is going to be in the first year, cut it in, into a third, and approach it like that. Because that's certainly with Tapui. That's what we did. We came out incredibly humble, and sort of said, "I don't know if it works. It works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But we're going to have some fun along the way, and we're going to get in here and we're going to learn something." And, you know, I, I do talk to a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, here in Santa Cruz, we've got a ton of them. And I talked to one just recently who launched, I think it's, the name of his company is called Pacific Northwest something, Overland or something. And he, um, you know, he showed me his forecast for what he was going to sell the first year and what his you know, budget was going to be. And look, you're going to make half of that and you're going to spend twice that. You know, so that's, that's really the thing. You need to get in and you need to learn your product. You need to learn your market but you need to do it in a sort of conservative fashion. And I think with, you know, Silicon Valley being over the hill, that's certainly against what they have done for years. And it's just go in there, raise millions of dollars, burn it like there's no tomorrow, and we'll just raise more. And maybe that works in tech, but it doesn't work in the consumer hard goods space. You need to come in. I don't think that works in any business except for tech. Nothing I've ever seen. That's a really weird model. And I think people who read too many tech blogs maybe get a little confused as to how that compares to the real world. So I think that's really good advice. Evan, where can people find more about you, about Hitchfire, about your products? Uh, well, hitchfire.com is where we've got our products listed. And, um, you know, certainly log wagons eventually too so but uh that's still several months out very good i i really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today uh it's been really insightful and uh i appreciate it very much uh that is all for this episode of only the strong survive we hope you found today's insights valuable i want to thank our guest today evan curd for taking the time to talk to me if you've enjoyed today's episode please take a moment to subscribe rate and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and if you have any questions, feedback, or suggestions for future topics, please feel free to reach out. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Dan Cott. Thanks for listening.